And welcome back. For the past two mornings, the 1A program, normally broadcast from WAMU in Washington from 9 to 11, has originated right here at St. Louis Public Radio. Host Joshua Johnson takes his show on the road from time to time. He wrapped up the Friday News Roundups just over an hour ago and sat down with me just after signing off to talk about his experience here. Joshua, welcome. Hi, Don. How was your experience here? Fantastic. Super busy. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get to see much of St. Louis beyond Grand Center right here, but it was it was lovely. This is a phenomenal station with a great fan base, people who really love it and support it and hold it in very high esteem and hold it to a very high standard. It's it's fantastic. Obviously, you couldn't spend too much time here, but did you learn anything during your time that you perhaps didn't expect to learn when you came in? Well, I haven't been to St. Louis since I was like 10 or 11 years old. I spent a Christmas here, which for a kid from South Florida was a bit of a shock. But I I didn't really know the city as an adult. And being able to see particularly this part of town was very impressive. There's a lot here. Like you can make a vacation to St. Louis. There's that much. It's it's rich with like culture and art and museums and things to do and, and things to see. In addition to all of the legacy issues and challenges that St. Louis is trying to address, I feel like the nation after Ferguson began to crystallize a conception of St. Louis that was real but incomplete. And the challenge for us is to find ways of telling the stories of communities that are real and complete. Now, we didn't have enough time in St. Louis to tell the deep story, but it's nice being able to be here and say, oh, there's – there's more to this place. There's more to see. There's more to know. And it just kind of reminds me as a journalist to be broad-minded in the way we look at communities. Your program on day one focused uh, on housing to a large degree. When coming into a town like this, and obviously you have a commitment to being on the road from time to time, but when coming into a town like this or any of them, how do you decide what subjects you want to tackle when you get there? We decide as a group, as a production team, everybody Pitches in ideas. Uh, the producer, the executive producer will assign producers to work on different days of the show or to oversee events if we're here. We try to find stories that are reflective of the city or the community that we're visiting with resonance to the nation. So the story we told about fair housing laws applies to the whole country. The beauty of being in St. Louis is twofold. One, we can use the local stories to humanize what is often just this really complex, wonky policy debate, which I think is the best way to do journalism. You know, it's, journalism is at its best, I believe, when it's a storytelling medium. It makes tough stories easier to understand. And two, St. Louis Public Radio makes it easy because they've done all this reporting. So we try to highlight the reporting of the stations we visit. And because this station had that podcast, we live here, has the podcast, it was easy to have stories that were already put together, vetted, curated, built, and beautifully produced. It was, it's, a, it's a richer and also a simpler way to do journalism in a city that resonates for the country. You had um, Sarah Kenzior on today, and she's written a book about, quote, flyover country which is what a lot of people call us here and uh, something that a lot of us don't like. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is a part of the country that's been largely ignored, uh, politically especially. What are your thoughts about that, about this part of the country? I I think it's easy as a journalist to get really mesmerized by New York and the Beltway and Los Angeles, the big hubs of industry and influence – 
I understand why Washington is getting so much attention right now, understandably. I understand why the coasts get so much attention. I think it's our responsibility as journalists to be as broad-minded as possible and to paint a clear picture of the country. But I don't think it's the responsibility of all journalists. You know, some news outlets really like to double down on Washington. They make it very clear what their values are. And that's fine. If they don't reflect your values, then why are you watching? Why are you listening? I think it's our responsibility in public radio to reflect communities in a different way. That's why this local national split that NPR has is wonderful. You get programs like Morning Edition and All Things Considered and 1A and others that allow you this national and international perspective. And then you get to build your local station so that it can do the regional work that a lot of national outlets don't do. So as much as I hate the fact that people in the Midwest – do not get their fair due on national media, I'm grateful to be part of a national organization that helps communities fill their own gaps. So we're not the ones saying, well, we think this is the story you ought to hear. Your community broadcaster can ask you as neighbors, as fellow residents, what should we be talking about together? Is there an inside the beltway mentality? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, well, I mean, the nice thing is that a lot of people from inside the Beltway are not from inside the Beltway. I'm not from there. I'm from Florida by way of San Francisco. So people end up in D.C. from everywhere. And it's nice because you've got all these different perspectives of people all over the country. I think it's so easy to get caught up in life in the Beltway. It's so demanding that you can develop that mentality if you're not careful, especially if you live and work there for a long time, which is why we love to travel. But, you know, D.C. is D.C. is lovely. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, L.A. and Hollywood or San Francisco and Silicon Valley. There's the industry town and then there's the real place where people live. And one of the things that's made it easier for me is understanding the difference between Washington and D.C. Like you work in Washington, but you live in D.C. And people in D.C. get tired of life in the Beltway, too. A lot of things. A lot of folks think that uh, uh, because of that D.C. mentality or Washington mentality, that uh, journalists missed the whole Trump thing when it was happening because they weren't taking the pulse of people like us. I think a lot of journalists missed it. I think some journalists presumed it. I think some news organizations made the decision to kind of ride that gravy train as hard as they could because the ratings were going up and the ad revenues were going up and the the storyline was so rich that it was hard to let it go. I think NPR did a better job than most, but I agree. I mean, I think a lot of people made presumptions about the election. I never thought that the election was a done deal. As soon as Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, I was like, okay, it's a toss up. This could go either way. But it was interesting to see how many people were just crestfallen on on election night. I think that's our responsibility to check our biases and expectations, which honestly is kind of the fun of being a journalist, is that you don't know what's going to happen and you get to just be along for the adventure as it's happening. But as difficult as it was, it was also important. You know, it's a learning experience. It's a time for us to say, all right, that was not our finest hour, 
That means our finest hour is yet ahead. What do we need to do to not make that mistake again? You know, I don't know if you know this. Perhaps you do that. Again, your guest today, Sarah Kenzior, uh, she has a Ph.D. in authoritarianism. And she was one of the first, if not the first, to predict that Donald Trump would become president on the basis of her studies. I didn't know that about her, no. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. 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 We've, we've had some conversations with guests about authoritarianism and President Trump. I, I think – I understand the argument. I do. I think part of what we've tried to focus on is the way that we engage with government and politics regardless of who's in charge. I mean the U.S. is not – some devastated war-torn country that makes it easy for an authoritarian to rise. This is not Germany in 1931. Like this is America in 2018. You know, unemployment is at 3.9 percent. The economy is doing well, though not well for everybody. We're not that place. We still have a lot of agency as Americans. And part of what we talk about on the program is not just what what the government is doing, but what we are doing. Remember, the founders said we are our government. We are a self-governing nation. So if we don't like what we see on TV, maybe we should go look in the mirror and see what we have done to build a country that we don't like. I understand the argument about the Trump administration. We also have to talk about ourselves as a body politic. What is it about us that has brought us to this place? Whether it serves you well or not, and what do we want to do to keep building a more perfect union? Then one would have to say that social media is really a, a real boon and a benefit in democratizing the country. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, social media is, is a tool. You know, it's kind of what you do with it. You know, fire can, can warm a house or burn it mm. down. It depends on where you put it and what you do with it uh, and, and whether you let it get out of control, quite frankly. I mean, I use social media all the time. Social media is a huge boon to 1A in terms of listener feedback or comments, or if I make a mistake on the air, we get feedback immediately and I can fix it within minutes. I think that the challenge is the expectation we put on social media. It's great that everyone can speak. No one is entitled to be heard. And I think part of the challenge in social media is measuring our ability to speak with our agency in hearing and in listening. It's tough to have a conversation on social media because people end up in this kind of river of content where they don't remember anything, but they come out wet. And part of what we're trying to do is some curation and some, some sense-making so that social media serves you well, so that you allow yourself to be heard and that we can make sense of, of what we're hearing and not just feel like we're all yelling at the same time. While we're talking about technology, I'm told that uh, you brought the house down during a reception last night <laughs> with your discussion about virtual reality, which I gather is your way of kind of escaping. Tell me about that. It's, it's a fun little escape. We'll be talking about VR Monday in our second hour at 10 a.m. But, yeah, I mean, someone asked me about my use of VR. I have a PlayStation 4 Pro, the one that puts out 4K video, which is super high-resolution video, and I bought the VR headset. When I moved to D.C., I was like, I want a toy. I want something to play with so that I'm not immersed in the Beltway mentality all the time. And the first time I played this little Star Wars mini game where you're flying an X-Wing and shooting down you know, TIE fighters, I hollered like a 10-year-old on a roller coaster. I have never become a little kid that fast. And one of the beauties of it is that it kept me playful. It kept me kind of youthful because journalism, as I'm sure you know, can grind your soul. 
you're talking about very difficult topics all the time. And if you're not careful, it'll wear you down. And one of the things that I love about my PlayStation, which I haven't gotten to play in a while, but I'm going to, is that it's just a forced escape. When you put on that headset and you put your headphones on, you are in another dimension. Granted, you're only supposed to play for about 15, 20 minutes at a time because your body needs a break. But it's nice to be able to just disconnect, to give yourself permission not to look at that notification on your phone or not to flip over to cable news because you haven't watched in the last 30 minutes. And what if something happens? You don't need to know right now. You don't. There's nothing that's going to happen that is that catastrophic that you got to know right now. And if it is, Someone will tell you. I guarantee you will know if it's an emergency. It's just nice to unplug. You're very much your own guy now. You have your own program and have made your mark on it. But I'm curious as to how long it took for that to happen following the replacement of an icon, Diane Lane. Well, I would say that I don't consider 1A to be my program. I really consider this to be a community trust that I am just a steward of and not even the steward, just a steward. And that helps to keep me honest. But I understand what you're getting at. I don't think it took that long for me. Diane was great in the transition. Like she was the one to make the announcement that I was her successor on her show. And it wasn't until she made the announcement that the news release went out and the Washington Post article was published. Like it started with her and that kind of gave her fans permission to like whatever came next. Diane cleared the decks for us in a way that I don't think could have been better. Because think about the way that a lot of these transitions happen. It's either because someone dies or because someone gets fired under you know shameful circumstances. None of that happened. Diane made it clear, I'm done. I am not being pushed out. This is my decision. And it gave her fans permission to like whatever came after. And that some of them were skeptical, and I totally get that. But it was nice being able to just have her ease the way and then let us build what we wanted to build. You know, I'm looking at your producers in the next room, and, and they agree it's not only your show. It's not my <laughs> show, no. And I could not, you know, producers work hard. Early mornings, late nights, weekends, holidays, we all work hard. But the conceptual work of building a show like this does not begin and end with me. And thank goodness, because this is growing into this this giant that is, you know, rapidly ascending in the ranks of public radio. But it's a team sport. And it's it's good to have a great team who I can just kind of hand the ball with and let them run. We only have a couple of seconds left as you prepare to leave St. Louis. What's your takeaway going to be having been here for just two days? Hmm. I, I'm glad that you have that you share my affinity for toasted ravioli. I did not know that was a thing until I got here. I am coming back to Emo's. I have heard such mixed reviews about it. I am deathly curious. And honestly, I, wanna, I would love to get to know this city more just as a casual observer. It's one thing being a journalist having to dissect it. I'd like to, to wander around St. Louis and have you all show me around. There are a lot of good stories here and in this part of the country, as I'm sure you know. And we'd love to hear more of them. St. Louis Public Radio is telling a lot of them, and maybe we'll tell some more, too. We've got a good group here. Joshua Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Great to have you in St. Louis, and I'm glad you enjoyed uh, your experience here. Two days of broadcasting here at St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you once again.